Ladies and gentlemen, you are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora. Respect that fact. Out there beyond that fence, every living thing that crawls, flies, or squats in the mud wants to kill you and eat your eyes for jujubes. Welcome to Now Playing Podcast's Avatar Retrospective Series. Get you out of your goddamn mind! You crossed the line. Hosted by Marjorie, Arnie, and Stuart. The humans are returning. But be warned, this episode will contain detailed plot spoilers and mildly objectionable language. If you want to live, you have to ride. We hope you enjoy the show. I see you. I see you. Today, we're discussing Avatar, The Way of Water, starring H. Barkley Aris, Zolo Abad, Matt Alavi, Wayne Anderson, Carl Chrisholm. Who are these people? The special effects artists. Aren't they the stars of this film? <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, I didn't recognize one name in this cast. I know Kate Winslet is in here somewhere. <laughs> I mean, do we want to list the mocap people, or do we want to list the people who actually did this film? I mean, you know, I, it's a combined effort. I think we can credit Sam Worthington for something, maybe. All right. Sam Worthington, Zoe Saldana, Sigourney Weaver, Stephen Lang, and Kate Winslet, directed by James Cameron. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and I don't see you. I hear you, but I don't see you. Well, it's Stuart. And this is Marjorie. 13 years. 13 years, folks. I went back and listened to that Avatar review. We were a different show in 2009. Yeah, I still feel like I was calling in from like a cell phone or something. It was uh, just <laughs> audio speaking wise. It was one of our first shows. It may have been my first show doing a one-off. I think I was insistent that we were going to do Avatar, not because we knew it would be a franchise, but just because we thought it would be a big movie. You had Midnight Meat Train before that. Wait, wait. So this is all your fault, Stuart. I mean, you know, I don't take all the blame, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> I wasn't wrong. Avatar ended up being not only the biggest movie of 2009, but... For a while, the biggest movie of all time. Maybe it still is. I'm not sure. I think globally it is. And none of us anticipated that. What's interesting, I did go back and listen to that show, is while I did feel like we were on the brink of something with motion capture and 3D and James Cameron coming back to creative life, I had no idea it was going to take so long to get a part two. You figure if you build a planet, like it's easy to like pop in the rest of the saga, right? But 13 years, this is a longer gap than between Titanic and Avatar that Avatar and Avatar 2 has taken. And I went back and I rewatched Avatar. It's on Disney+. Plus. I watched it in 2D. This is my fourth time seeing Avatar, believe it or not. I've watched it twice between its release and now. Once when I was doing my 40-year-old critic series, I rewatched it for that to see if my opinion had stayed the same. Watching it now, and I have to say, what we all agreed upon that first time is the effects were so good, the 3D was so good. Watching it in 2D on 4K Disney+, Plus, those effects did not entirely hold up <laughs> compared to today's effects. I mean, when you compare the Na'vi to Thanos and the way Josh Brolin's performance really came through, I felt like 
Avatar was very much a product of 2009. Yeah, it was definitely in its infancy as far as technology goes there. Because I watched it with you again this past week. It took us a few nights because, you know, it's a commitment and like going to work to watch this movie. And seeing it just before seeing the sequel, I think really helps you appreciate how far technology has come as far as CGI. 2009 feels like I could reach out and touch it, but I hadn't seen the movie since then. And the first time I went back and saw it was in September. They had a re-release. You could go back to IMAX. You could see it again in 3D. I still feel like my opinion held up as well. It's a really tactile, immersive experience to go back to Pandora on IMAX 3D screens and see it. But I did also purchase... There's an extended version. I don't know if you guys know that, but they released a disc that has... Well, uh, hours worth of extra deleted scenes and about 15, 16 minutes of extra stuff on planet Earth as well. How were the hour of deleted scenes? Did Avatar need to be four hours long? Well, I mean, we talked about it in our initial review that at the same time that it was kind of arduous as a sit, there were things that were missing because there is so much denseness to the concepts that we're plugging into, that, yeah, you get a lot more of Sigourney Weaver, for example, a character I didn't feel very connected to in the theatrical cut. We see a little bit more dimension to her than being grousy. A little. She has a few fights with Giovanni Ravisi. Definitely get a lot more of the romance. You get a little bit more about what Jake's life was like on Earth and his relationship to his brother. It's all that kind of stuff. There were a few battles, really incomplete stuff, things with like bats and stuff like that they didn't get to, that they didn't need to get to. A dance scene, eh, definitely (laughs) leave the dance scene out. But, you know, going back to it, here's the thing. On one hand, I said it then and I say it now. I don't need to go back to Pandora. I would love to go back to a James Cameron movie. So my feelings about coming to Way of Water are twofold. On one hand, I've missed the guy. You know, I think that he is a great action film director. I always appreciate every film that he's made. I've given a recommend to. But at the same time, I didn't think he would isolate here. I didn't think that he was going to retire and suddenly just like Pandora's it, probably. If we look at the fact of his age and what he's been doing, probably... Everything that he gives us from now on is going to be an Avatar movie. And even things like Alita Battle Angel, you know, that was supposed to be his movie. It ended up getting made by Robert Rodriguez and was pretty good. But I wish it had been made by James Cameron. Well, $2 billion can really change your priorities, I understand. I don't know from personal experience, but I have a feeling that even after his Titanic money, $2 billion probably changed his life to saying he's king of the world to actually being king of the world. <laughs> mm-hmm. Basically, I have a feeling that Pandora allows him to indulge his own flights of fancy. He can justify the expense of getting in a submarine and going under the Antarctic ice for six months or whatever because it's quote-unquote research, right? Like, I'm going to put it in this movie somewhere. It's all a tax (laughs) write-off. Right. But for him, I feel like it's an opportunity. I get that. That's what retirement is, right? It's a chance to explore sides of yourself you weren't able to live in your younger life. But I guess I'm just not ready 
for him to retire yet. I really, again, when I think about the works that he's done, the exciting early, you know, Aliens for me, reinventing the Ridley Scott movie in an action movie format was groundbreaking. The first two Terminator movies. I mean, I also had a lot of love for Abyss, problematic as it is. The early films were really exciting. And Pandora does feel like Club Med. It does feel like, you know, put on some sandals, a tacky Hawaiian shirt, and kind of kick back in a hammock. It doesn't feel exciting. So I was trying to get enthused about this. I mean, it's taken a whole lot of time, and it was the biggest movie. I mean, again, that's worth contemplating that for some people, this was a place they never wanted to leave. You heard these stories about people that, like, saw this movie 10, 20, 30 times because they got addicted to the transportive nature of the filmmaking. I remember hearing people wanted to be Navi and were doing tattoos and were really living that fantasy lifestyle of they really wanted to be Navi. Yeah, that year at San Diego Comic-Con, it was a big thing with people being Navi and adopting the culture, if you recall, Arnie. I remember sitting on the trolley and seeing two guys dressed like Navi going to Comic-Con. But we haven't seen that lately. And I don't Mm -mm. just mean COVID. I mean, I can't remember the last time I saw somebody dressed like a Navi. It might have been 2010. It wasn't supposed to take this long, right? It was supposed to be out in like five years or something like that. And he just kept saying the effects weren't ready. I don't believe they started filming this until, you know, 2017. So a lot of the time was just spent on that proverbial research that I was talking about. And yeah, I think that's a challenge for any franchise to have to wait that long for something new. What keeps the fans alive? The only thing that I saw that came out in the 13 years in between was they created a theme park at Disney World in 2017. And I think this part's interesting. You go to Animal Kingdom, their zoo. Disney has like a zoo and they're treating Pandora like a, you know, literal habitat that you can visit. There are a couple rides. I think you can like take a boat ride and then there's a 3D simulator on one of the Banshees. But for the most part, it's about you going around and admiring the plants and seeing the robotic animals. Yeah, James Cameron talked about this in one of the multitude of interviews he's done. Why send out the stars for this movie? I don't know that they matter as much as James Cameron's name. I don't know what happened to Sam Worthington in the past 13 years, but... He talked about how he was happy with the Disney buyout of Fox because Avatar was a Fox property, but Disney was very supportive, and he talked about how successful that was, that it really increased the attendance at Animal Kingdom quite a bit, and Disney is very supportive of this movie, and it's reported 350 to $400 million price tag. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can go there. I get that. that that's exciting. I mean, it'll be for anybody. I mean, I, I get the thrill of being able to stand in the place that you've only seen in the movies. They also had a Cirque du Soleil show in 2015, 2016. I saw it tour around. I've seen a lot of Cirque du Soleil. I don't know if you guys have, have done that, but I thought about going. <laughs> I, I mean, I think they have a cool circus, but in the end, here's my take on Cirque du Soleil. It's always the same show. You're always going to get the juggling, the tight ropes. Somebody's going to get shot out of a cannon, the bike tricks. They always have the same stuff in it. It's just about the costume that they put on. So it wasn't necessarily interesting to think that they were going to do all of that stuff as blue people with tails. 
But you can watch about 30 minutes of it online. I did watch it. It looked a lot like Julie Taymor's Broadway Lion King. Yeah, they, when the animals came out and all of that, it was a lot of puppetry and stuff like that. There was some kind of storyline. It's a prequel, apparently, where two adoptive brothers run around in the forest. But, you know, you get it. And then they walk on tight ropes and get shot out of cannons and juggle things and do things you do in the circus. Okay, I just looked up pictures from the Cirque du Soleil thing and, wow, kind of creepy and weird. Well, I mean, Lion King's kind of that way too, but it works. I mean, again, both of them speak to the idea of people wanting to experience Pandora in close proximity. That the appeal of that first movie stands on the idea, and, I, and this is my recommend as well, that you get to visit another planet. That that's really cool. But what I'm hoping for the sequel, what they need to do for the sequel, is to tell a good story. I thought the first movie had a serviceable introduction. A guy that couldn't walk learns how to adapt and become a new creature with legs and experience love in a different way and life in a different way and recognize his, the flaws of his race. All of that stuff I thought worked well enough. But if I'm going back to Pandora, I want more. For a sequel, I definitely have higher aspirations for the story than what we got in 2009. I don't know if you guys know this, kind of speaking of like people immersing themselves in the experience, but Navi is an actual constructed language that a linguist made up and you can learn it online. And there's a Navi to English dictionary, there's speaking tutorials, grammar and syntax and everything. I've never been that much into anything. I mean, this reminds <laughs> me of Trekkers. Yeah. I mean, you guys are in the Star Wars world. This is not surprising to you. But I've never, as much as I've loved entertainment, I've never wanted to go that far. I never wanted to write myself into the story. That feels bordering, for me at least, on delusional. But there's an app even to help you. Even when I was cosplaying as a Star Trek person, I never wanted to learn the Klingon language. That actually seemed like work instead of fun. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, where can you use it? I convinced myself that I was excited for Avatar 2. I didn't recommend the first one. It was a very weak not recommended. Really was right on the borderline. The effects were great. The story was rote. And in the end, had it been a half an hour shorter, I probably would have given it a recommend. But for the commitment it took, I didn't feel like it paid off. But man, I was thinking, James Cameron, we just recently reviewed True Lies. It reminded me how much I really do like his stuff. It's very weird. When I get away from his stuff, I think I don't like it. Yes. And then I go and see it, and I do like it. Yeah, I just listened to that True Lies show, and you said you don't even like aliens. I was like, what are you talking about? Yeah, I think if I rewatched Aliens, I'll remember I really like Aliens. I would hope so. I have to go listen to the Aliens review when I actually just saw it. And so I'm thinking, James Cameron, master filmmaker, I even really liked Titanic when we reviewed it, not all that long ago. So let's give this a shot. I went opening day Thursday to see this in IMAX 3D and had my ticket for Friday also to see this in 2D with Marjorie. I was really thinking this has a great shot of improving on what was a slightly shaky but still pretty solid foundation. 
Yeah, you built the world, now what are you going to do with it? And that's really my curiosity. The early buzz was great. I just want to put it out there. Now, of course, the fanboys that first saw it are saying even better than the first one. Good. Need that to be true. But now I'm hearing best picture contender. Maybe even best picture winner. Like, this thing has the momentum to go all the way. And so, yeah, I came to it fully expecting to like it. To preview my thoughts... I was also planning to see it. I saw it Thursday night in IMAX 3D. I was planning to see it Friday in IMAX as well. And I just did not want to. I just canceled the ticket and did not go a second time. I went through the five stages of grief when Arnie told me another Avatar movie was coming out. And I didn't believe him that I had been on the first show for now I'm playing on this. So I went through this whole denial, acceptance, anger thing when... I found out there's another movie coming and I was on the first show. So I had plans to see it with Arnie on Friday evening till he saw it on Thursday. I'll just preview my thoughts and be completely honest here. When I was seeing it on Thursday and realized I also was seeing it on Friday, I almost walked out of the theater. <laughs> Other people were walking out of the theater. Some people around me left around the midpoint and never returned. And I thought about doing the same because I'm like, I have to watch this again tomorrow. And then I thought, well, there's only 90 minutes left. What's 90 minutes? And then come Friday, I just got really busy and I didn't want to go. So I sent Marjorie alone. <laughs> yeah, I went and saw it alone. I saw the 930 in the morning showing because it was the earliest one I could find. It was me and one other person in the theater. So that was kind of fun to watch. I think the other person in the theater with me did fall asleep, though, because they had the recliner all the way back and they weren't moving for a very long time. <laughs> Yeah, here's the thing. It's expected to have a big opening. And I'm hearing when you combine the international, it could be one of those giant big openers, 300, 400 million this weekend alone. I'm hearing 500 with possibly 350 from China and 150 from the States. And I mean, China money is important money. I know they're having a COVID outbreak, so that could be a problem, but they're expecting you know, a quarter of the last one's gross in the span of three days. Mm -hmm. In looking at going to the theater for myself alone, I noticed that the 3D showings were completely full. I mean, mm -hmm. you were sitting in the front row if you went, but the 2D showings, which is what I did because I can't see 3D, was, I mean, you could sit anywhere. There was, I think the next most crowded showing I found had six other people in it. And that was for even like in the evening to go see it. When I saw my IMAX 3D showing, I was surprised that it wasn't full because I'm hearing these box office numbers. There's not a lot of IMAX screens around me. If you want to see IMAX, there's like three choices. And so usually those are sold out. And here it's about a 350 person theater. A hundred tickets were sold. I actually literally counted. It was exactly 100. And then a lot of people didn't show up. Like a lot of seats around me had been sold and nobody showed up for that. So it felt like maybe a quarter full. Now I did cut off work a little bit early to go see a four o'clock show, but I looked at the seven o'clock show. It didn't seem that much more sold out. But when I looked at some non-IMAX showings, it was almost impossible to find a seat. So maybe it's because IMAX is harder to see down here. I see showings are sold out, but people aren't maybe wanting to pay the premium ticket prices. 
Sure, that makes sense. IMAX is a hefty one. You can still see it in 3D, real D. You know, there are other ways to have that immersive experience. Yeah, Marjorie, that explains everything. The reason why no one was in your screening is no one wants to go to Pandora without being fully immersed. You know you're missing something if you don't get that reach out and touch the screen quality. Exactly. The 7 o'clock IMAX that was as sold as my 3D IMAX was a 2D IMAX showing. Oh. I had a choice. I could see this in 3D IMAX, or I could see this in 3D Dolby with the high frame rate. And it's funny, they're just expecting you to know it because it's like, come see Dolby HFR 3D. (laughs) And I'm like, HFR, oh, high frame rate. I remember doing that for, I believe, the last of the Hobbit films, and I chose IMAX over high frame rate. I thought high frame rate. It was a detriment to those Hobbit movies. It actually, the detail work was so great, you could actually see the seams and the effects and the costumes and such. Like Maybe here, it would be even better because there are no costumes. It is all computer skin. So maybe I'm missing something. Wasn't an option here. Just did the traditional 3D IMAX. But I wouldn't have imagined, uh, Marjorie, you're telling me that, yeah, medically, you're not able to see 3D. So why pay that price? Yeah, it's not like, I'm like, don't think I can see it. I really can't. I have really bad vision in my left eye, and it doesn't work right because of that. And I also fail some of the tests of the doctor with that. That's one of the tests they give you. Yeah, so it's no point in me seeing it in 3D because it actually gives me headaches too. And I'm not just being a baby. It's legit. Yeah, I think right there that makes it harder to appreciate what this movie has to offer. But why don't we talk about that? Already give them the plot, and we'll find the way of water. I don't have a plot summary. I have a premise summary because there's so much exposition saying what happened between the two movies. I'm going to spend more time explaining where this movie takes place than what happens in this movie. It's been over a decade since the events of the original Avatar film. In the time between, Jake, played by Sam Worthington, has lived in his Navi body, married to Natiri, played by Zoe Saldana. The two have had three children together, oldest son, Niteam, younger son Loak, and young daughter Took. Plus, they adopted a daughter. If you remember Grace, the scientist played by Sigourney Weaver who died in the last film, after she died, her avatar mysteriously was pregnant. That child was a girl who Jake and Natiri named Kiri. I can't imagine what labor pains are like for a corpse. <laughs> <laughs> They're killer. Mm. <laughs> The Navi lived in peace for most of the time between the films. But recently, before this film starts, humans returned to Pandora. This time, the humans aren't here to mine unobtainium. With Earth dying, they're here to colonize Pandora. Did you notice they conspicuously never use the term unobtainium in this movie? Yes. (laughs) They say mineral, but they never go back to that stupid-ass term. (laughs) They don't even seem to want the mineral anymore. It's all about, like, whale juice. It's anti-aging. Mm-hmm. Jake has become chief of his Navi tribe, so he leads guerrilla attacks against the human base and operations. All of this is between the movies, shown in montage. Even the guerrilla attacks and all of this, montage between the movies. But here is where the movie starts. To try and counter these attacks, the humans have brought in a specialized group of marines. These marines have all died in the line of duty, But before their death, their memories and personalities were backed up and now have been downloaded into Navi bodies. The group is led by Colonel Miles Quaritch, 
the Marine killed in battle with Jake and Natiri in the first film, again played by Stephen Lang. Warwick has a hard-on to get revenge on Jake, so Jake resigns as chief of the tribe and takes his family into hiding. They leave the Pandora Forest and go to live with the Metkiana Reef People clan. Initially, Jake and his family are rejected by the water-adaptive Navi, but Jake's children focus on learning the way of water, and soon the Sullys are accepted by the Metkayina. Younger son Loak makes friends with whale-like Tulkin named Payakan. Meanwhile, Colonel Quaritch has taken captive a young human boy named Spider. Spider is the biological son of Quaritch's human form, but was left on Pandora when the humans evacuated. Spider was raised among the Na'vi. Now Quaritch is trying to re-establish father-son bonds so Spider can help Quaritch find Jake. While Spider helps in some ways, teaching Quaritch and his men how to be Na'vi, Spider resists the colonel's violent and ruthless methods of hunting Sully. This includes bringing in a whaling team to hunt Tulkins among the reef people, leaving Tulkin corpses floating, hoping the dead beasts will entice the reef people to get up Jake. I thought it was Tukloon, just FYI. I thought, I thought it was a different accent on that word entirely. It very well may be. Okay, all right. <laughs> Can we just call them space whales? I'm calling them space whales. I- I'm cool with space whales. Leaving the two clan corpses floating, hoping the dead beasts will incite the reef people to give up Jake. The second time the whalers try to kill a space whale, which happens to be Loak's friend Payakin, Jake leads the reef Navi on an attack. Jake's children are captured, escape, then get captured again. For right? Like, for the whole movie? He's just like, <laughs> even the child gets tired of it. She's like, again? I'm on this damn balcony? <laughs> In battle, Jake's oldest son, Natium, is shot and killed. Enraged, Jake and Quaritch fight in hand-to-hand combat. Jake wins the hard-fought battle and leaves Quaritch's body to drown, but Spider rescues Quaritch from death, though Spider then goes off with Jake and his family as credits roll. And yeah, I probably mispronounced half the names, half the species, Mm -hmm. and I'm sorry, it's not that I'm trying to be disrespectful to this movie, They aren't said a whole lot. I'm fortunately able to say right off the bat, they have improved the CGI to where I can really tell these characters apart while watching it without really ever knowing their names. Agreed. And one of the sons doesn't even really matter except when he gets killed. That's correct. So yes, this one is going to be about a family. If you saw before a human being taking a tentative first step into a new world, a new body, a new way of being with new responsibilities. By the opening of this, again, it's not like they start the next day. I think as long as it's taken to get a sequel is the time span between Avatar 1 and this. I think even longer, because it seems to me that Jake and Natiri's oldest son is close to 18. Okay. So I think just a few extra years because he's still treated like a child, but he is one of the warriors. He's one of their scouts. I kept writing his name as Mateo, but it's actually Nateum. I thought it was Mateo also, if that helps. Yeah. So we got this opener that, yeah, is basically data dumping the idea of, hey, look, I got this great family. I'm all about family. Being a dad and being a protector is my new identity. 
you know, it does kind of feel like a childhood friend that you had and you reconnected them in middle life and like as a single person that doesn't have a family, I'm like, well, I'm not totally connecting to where you're at in life. You are now spending a lot of time like dogpiling on a leaf with your children. And <laughs> like he literally calls it date night with his wife when they're flying around with dragons and what have you. It feels very insular. And it, it, I guess if I were the leader of a tribe, uh, where we left off, I just thought that they were planning something grander like this feels very domesticated and kind of boring dare i use that word surprisingly mundane existence thank god the sky people are coming back <laughs> i found it very weird that jake a former human kept referring to them in his voiceover narration as the sky people i get it when you're talking to the navi and you're trying to explain hey we're in danger they call them the Sky People, but I guess he's just gone full native here and assimilated. Yeah, I almost think this time in between with all of the him becoming chief and things is a story worth exploring. How did the Navi decide that this outsider who has an extra finger, I never noticed that in the first film, mm -mm. that the avatars had five fingers, but the real Navi had four. Deleted scenes. There, It was uh, emphasized in things that weren't put in the movie. Okay, that this outsider with ten fingers should become their leader, and I didn't even get that from the movie. He calls himself War Chieftain, I thought maybe he was like their big general, but I didn't get until he was giving up the position he was head of the clan. We're not interested in Sam Worthington, right? Haven't we all decided not a star? Like, he's been in action movies and stuff, and we just decided, nah, no thanks. Yeah, he was the next big thing when this came out because he's also in Terminator Salvation. Mm -hmm. So he was like on the precipice of being the next big action star. And I had that, oh yeah, remember this guy kind of moment when this movie came out? Because like he was supposed to be like huge and well, I don't think anyone cares anymore. I think they're retiring him. Again, he feels very settled in his life. Not a lot going on. I'm just hanging with my family. You know, we do pizza and, and watch movies and hang out on leaves. And this is my life. And I'm going to let my kids take over this franchise. It becomes pretty evident really early on. If there's a new star, it's Loat, uh, the rebellious younger son, has all of the fire that he had as a young man. He gets the story. I, I feel like dad... And uh, even Natiri, Zoe Saldana, are just background characters. I don't really know Brittain Dalton, who plays Loak. I've not seen him. I guess I played him a little bit in Uncharted 4 when I was going through those games real quick. And he was in Ready Player One somewhere. But he's really thrust into the spotlight here for what I think is the first time. Yeah, all the children haven't really, again, they're not established Maybe they're on TikTok. You know, what would I know? <laughs> Go ahead and put it that way. He could be huge uh, in TikTok. But Britton Dalton, he had a, a stint in a Billy Bob Thornton TV series called Goliath. Other than that, I want to just say right off the top that, yes, the motion capture has gotten so much better. And what I loved about the first one remains the thing that I love about this one. I just love watching the characters' faces. I love to watch the expressiveness, the way that the computer technology can really get into the fine details of the emotive performance. 
Lowak is a good one to follow. He is my favorite character for that reason. He's got this really like hangdog face. He's always feeling like he's not measuring up. He's always in trouble. It feels like a sitcom family. Am I wrong? This feels like something that you would expect to see on network television. The dynamics here. Yeah, I can't decide if they intentionally made the family very human and relatable or if it was just showing the family progressing, but they didn't bother with the Navi customs and stuff because obviously their dad's human via Avatar. And it was interesting to see, you know, there's still the bullies and all of that human dynamics when you're in a completely different society that was only briefly touched, been touched by human society. I'll agree with you, Stuart. I think the mocap looks great. It's different than what I mentioned with Thanos, where I really saw Josh Brolin's face, and the CGI there was like an incredible makeup job. Here, I don't feel like I see the actors' faces come through. I feel like what I'm seeing is a real creation I mean, I don't know Sam Worthington's face all that much, but Sigourney Weaver is going to play a teenage daughter here, Kiri, and I don't see Sigourney Weaver in that face. I really look, sometimes I hear it in the voice, and Zoe Saldana, it's really funny to listen to our Avatar 2009 review, because I referred to her just as Uhura, I didn't know her from much, I've since seen her in a lot of stuff, not just Guardians, but The Losers and some other stuff she's done, and I don't see her face in Natiri, but I think that these look good, these look emotive, but at times, I do feel like I'm watching a Pixar film, just a really good-looking, realistic one, but all of the animation that went into this. I can see why you filmed this in 2017, but don't release it until 2022. It had to take a lot of time to build these creations. Yeah. Is this essentially just an animated film at this point if we're not ever going to see Sam Worthington return to his human body? That was the end of the first movie is going to do this ceremony. Don't even know if it's going to work. And his eyes open And now we see not only did it work, but he has no reservations. Everything is all good as a Navi, and he's got all these kids and all of that. Yeah, it does feel like, yeah, some kind of animated, kid-oriented kind of story that's being told here. And I'll just register that begins my disappointment. I feel like this one, I mentioned network sitcom television, it feels like the domesticated problems that are going to be the story engine for much of this are too small for the grandiosity of the vision. I don't like what happened to Jake. I mean, I understand he became a father and things, but he is an ex-Marine who has become very neutered. When the Sky People start coming for him, specifically him, he went from the war chief to on the run, and he gives all these speeches about it's protecting the tribe because I will no longer be here, they'll no longer attack this tribe, and it's protecting my family. But that doesn't seem like the Jake we saw in the first movie. I would think, if anything, these sorties they're doing against the Sky People and everything would bring back that Marine in him and bring back that fire and that fight. The fact that all he wants to do is run away and that him in hiding is going to be about two hours of this movie is a disappointment. None of this makes sense. Let's get to the central premise. So the Sky People are back because they want another Earth. 
They think that this planet is the closest. I mean, I don't know why. It doesn't have breathable air. Everything could kill them. Like, everything that Stephen Lang said in the first one about how you wouldn't want to be here, it's hell is a vacation by comparison. Suddenly, we have the hubris to think, okay, perfect. We'll build the houses here. Not a problem. Why bring back? Now, I know why you, you want to from an entertainment value, but why bring back Quaritch? If he died in battle, I don't know why you would think that it's important to have him leading any kind of mission here. Because no one else would have the vendetta against Sully except for him, because he was killed by him and his family chasing him down. I mean, it's an easy villain to pick and seemed to fit well because for some reason there's this little baby spider running around that was his, which I don't remember from the first one. It's not there. Okay. No, no, he must have knocked up somebody off screen and they gave birth before they got on a shuttle. And because we get some line about cryostasis doesn't work on infants, they had to just keep him on the planet. What it does is it allows a cool reference point. We have a 99% animated movie, but then you have this human actor interacting with them and it allows us to see comparatively what how we would experience this world. That's the value of that. But uh, again, you're telling me that they need this guy to hunt down Jake. I don't know why that's even a thing. Like, you have to colonize the world. So why don't you start doing that and not worry about Jake? Because it's a personal vendetta. Well, I understand why Edie Falco wants Jake dead. Because Jake is leading the attacks. He's killing their supply lines. He's stopping their expansion. And so, as their general, as a trained Marine who's taught these Navi to fight, then I could see why you need to take the head off of the Hydra. All right, so he's a really big threat. I, I did not get. There is one scene of them derailing a train, and even though they have robots that can build a skyscraper in a day, that is some kind of huge setback on creating Earth 2.0. Yeah, I think we see one train we're supposed to understand there's a lot of voiceover in this beginning. We're supposed to understand he's done this again and again. And that's why Edie Falco, who is, I'm guessing, going to have a bigger part in the next film. But here she's playing General Francis Ardmore. She's the one who brought in these Marines who they put in Navi bodies. I'll agree with you. I don't think Stephen Lang is needed. I think this is an opportunity to bring in a new villain. I mean, understand, they've already filmed part three, and they've started filming part four. You had Stephen Lang in the first film. You could build new villains, but by bringing him back, it does create that personal vendetta bit Marjorie mentioned, and... That's the thing. For much of this movie, it doesn't feel like what Stephen Lang and his troops are doing is strategic. It feels personal. Which is strange. Because again, if I'm trying to build a new Earth before everyone dies on Earth, what this guy had a problem with with Jake feels small. Like super small. And I would just worry about building the skyscrapers and transporting the people. It felt like two very different movies, though. Because you had the, oh, we want to move Earth people to here, and then it turns into the space whales in the second half. It was very uneven that way. I'll say I really like the stuff. I didn't need Stephen Lang back, but the stuff between Quaritch and Spider is the stuff that I connected to most in this film. This 
estranged father who's kind of like, I'm not even really your father, I'm a reincarnation of his memories, but I need to know the Navi way. And you've got Spider, who is also called Monkey Boy, and so I just kept thinking Spider Monkey from Twilight, the nickname for Bella, but you've got this Spider who is loyal to Jake, and yet also finds himself being won over by his father. I thought that was the best emotional arc in this film and the stuff that I liked the most. Yeah, early on, and by early, I mean at the half-hour mark, we see that Quaritch, yes, he wakes up, he realizes he's younger, he's blue, he has become the enemy, the bald guy, like, I don't even remember his henchman, there was like one bald dude named Lyle is back and some other ones, and they're all going out there to get revenge we understand the concept that these people, basically, their personalities are kept on little, like, thumb drive. You can just pop them into any Navi, which is strange. I didn't think it was that easy. I mean, it's so weird, because the last one, it involved the spirit tree and CCH Pounder doing a big ritual, and we weren't even sure if it was going to work. It almost happened with Sigourney Weaver. At the end of the film, it happened with Jake. And now, yeah, this movie is called Avatar, but I don't think there's a single avatar in the film, is there? There's just these, what they call recombents, which are Navi avatar bodies, but they've actually put the human consciousness in them. Right. The humans have their own way of doing that, and then Pandora, they download into the actual Earth. Mother Earth, Iwa, they stick their tails into an outlet, and their all their memories can basically live at the center of the planet, which is why they care about the trees so much. They're basically, I mean, if you've ever needed to recharge your phone, you know why they care about these trees. <laughs> they're, they're basically, they're ports for keeping their memories and their selves alive, because nothing ever dies if you can upload to the cloud, so to speak, or download to the tree root. That's sort of the attitude. And so existence, consciousness in this world is very ephemeral. Your body doesn't really matter because who you are is transferable. All I'm saying is last time we were told Jake was special because his twin brother was the only one that could fit into this body and it took so many years to create this avatar. And now it's like, well, pop, 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 here we go. Here's the team again. It just feels like an incredibly lazy way of reestablishing the old dynamics rather than moving on to new dynamics. Why can't Edie Falco be the villain? Why must we go back to Stephen Lang? Now, don't get me wrong. Stephen Lang was certainly a highlight of the first one, but I don't like his blue incarnation nearly as much. It lacks the intensity that that actor's face has. And then the fact that he had those three like like he'd been scratched by something across his face yeah it adds to the menacing personality that the avatar does not have i mean stephen lang is a menacing personality anyway if you saw don't breathe which we reviewed last year but you don't see it in this avatar face yeah he's a scary guy yeah his face is scarier than whatever they've created for him here as this navi recombent i think i don't see his face in it and his face is menacing. His face is scary. I get his voice. I think it would be better to bring him back as a human, and, but I understand that would open new questions about cloning and everything. It's easier, I guess, story-wise, to say, 
we can download people into these fake Navi bodies instead of human bodies. And it also, we get to replay a lot of the beats from that first film. What does it mean to be a Navi? I gotta go tame my flying beast. I've got to learn the way of the Navi. This time, it's Spider teaching his dad instead of Natiri teaching Jake. But we do have a lot of those same beats as Quaritch becomes familiar with his new body. I hear what you're saying is, emotionally speaking, because I think that's so relatable for some fathers to feel disconnected from the parental role, that he hasn't quite accepted the fact that this is his child and that this child can teach him how to become more like this culture that he was so opposed to, that would be interesting to explore. It's only a few scattered scenes in here. I feel like the actual dramatic work is not that satisfying. And you're right, mostly a replay of the last movie where he just learns the language real fast and goes and gets a banshee. But you don't even need banshees because they're moving to the coast. It's all about hanging out in the water. I feel bad for the banshees. Last time I'm like, we're connected forever. And then it's like, eh, you can't swim. Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this is the way of water. So Jake goes to hide among the reef people who are very different Navi. They have thicker tails that help them swim. Their fingers are sort of webbed. Their skin is more aqua than rich blue. Yeah, they definitely look different. They have enough differences where you can tell they're kind of similar. But it's interesting, like, when those first two meet, and that's when you get the first taste of the bullying and the rival clans a little bit. But these people did help out at the end of the first movie, right? There was, like, this moment where, like, Jake goes around the planet and gets all these troops, and they all come together to get the sky people off the planet. I don't think these people helped because they hadn't come up with the idea that there were reefs on Pandora. There's a shot. There's a shot of them going to the coast and grabbing people. That's all I can say. Were they different colored? I don't think it was conceived. I think you're right. This wasn't thought out to have been set up in that way. We didn't really see those people. We just see them swing by and pick up a few folk on the coastal outcrops. But my sense is that they know this is the war hero, but they are not cool with, because they can't hold their breath and swim really great, they don't like the idea of them staying there. I don't know. This is kind of pitiful. I'm just going to go ahead and say I'm really getting mad by this point of the movie. Like, I feel like this is the drama. This is the thing that they're exploring. You have this giant world, and it's a tiff about whether, like, kids can hold their breath long. Stuart, I see you. Mm. But (laughs) I also understand why you do this. It took me forever in this movie because this movie lasts forever. But for a long time, I felt what you feel until I realized this is what people who love Avatar will want. The first movie was all about Jake learning about the Navi people, learning the ways of the forest, learning to commune with the trees, learning to grab that banshee, and all of that. And so here, we're going to replay those beats. Jake and his son, Loak, are going to both be learning this way. And so while you and I may want something a bit more plot-driven and a bit more James Cameron action-y, what that first film was was that Nat Geo special, and now they're going to do that again here with water and 
It's almost like a totally new world. It's so much more of Pandora to explore. It's going to replay a lot of the beats from the first one. Agreed. Yes. They've given themselves the option to hit reset and say everything you saw before, except no forest, all underwater. That was the high concept to which I go, meh. Yeah, that's that's very disappointing. Like, again, we were told this gigantic world and all these epic intergalactic stakes and to find out that it's just going to be about learning to, you know, hold your breath for five minutes underwater or something and all the moon eyes that the young kid gets with the young girl. It's fine to have that stuff. It's important to have that. But to make the middle of this movie essentially Pete's Dragon or some like 70s Disney movie about a boy and his whale, <laughs> I was truly flabbergasted. I can honestly say I started the movie a little rough. I'm like, okay, but now we're actually at the coast, and boy, do I hate the middle of this movie. Like, with a burning passion, despise everything that happens in the middle of this movie. This is where I got really, really bored, though. And I had tried not to drink a lot of beverages. And the middle time is really a great time to get up if you need a refill on something and you need to use the restroom. Because I went and used the restroom and got a refill and came back and there was still nothing happening. All right. Let's start with the stupidest of the stupid. The whale? Yes. They have these whales. And like there's a scene. I kid you not. Kate Winslet is to play the queen. I don't know exactly how power is distributed here, but she is the chieftain's wife. Yes. It feels like she has more power than the chief did, though. So not entirely sure what her role is. But yes, Kate Winslet is like, oh, good. My spirit sister is coming. And she has like five minutes of chit chat with a whale being like, oh, you've changed your hair. Oh, look at your kids. You know, I've gained five pounds. I'm like, I cannot even believe. I cannot even believe like you didn't even put this on the DVD cut scene that this is in the movie. You know, when we're first introduced to these whales, it comes in through Loak. And he is taken outside of the reef by the chieftain's sons. It's a prank that really could kill him. He's left alone out there. He starts getting attacked by some underwater shark-like thing. And then the shark gets attacked by something else, which reminds me, of course, of the Phantom Menace and Liam Neeson's There's Always a Bigger Fish. That's all I could think about when the dangerous fish got eaten by the bigger fish. And then Loak drowns, but this whale saves his life. Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm This scene is so bad, it's hard. To, I actually kind of want to go back and just watch this scene. <laughs> it's so bad. So he's drowning, and this fin comes down, and it's got, like, a spike in it, and it, like, lifts him up, and he looks in the eye, he's like, oh, did they hurt you? And he's like, woo, yeah, it feels bad. I'm like, I cannot. I cannot, like, yes, he's got a harpoon through him. He was hurt. I cannot believe it has turned into this movie. If the first movie was Pocahontas, they have gone full free willy. They have pulled some shit that I cannot even, like, is James Cameron just going to work through every kitty film of the 1990s? Is part three going to be like Good Burger with them plugging their hair into a giant hamburger and swimming in a strawberry jacuzzi? I want to know. Like, is this what I got to look for? When I'm seeing this, I think Loak is just really childish and talking to an animal. Now, I talk to my dogs, and but what I didn't get 
is that the whale could talk back. Oh, I- my God. Yes. <laughs> no, it's like getting like subtitles and everything. And it's just like, and it's so casual talk. Like, it's not even like a different animal language or something like It's like, yeah, I don't feel so good. I don't want to talk about it. I'm like, oh, this is, this is bad. <laughs> I mean, super bad. And it's the two outcasts, the young son who wants to be treated like a man so much and is left there by the chieftain's sons. And this whale that's been outcast from his tribe because... Yeah, help me out with this. Supposedly all his the things in his pod were murdered and they blame him? Like he killed all of his friends or something? Yeah, I didn't understand that and follow that, especially even when they showed what happened. I'm like, no. I still don't understand why is this his fault. Because it's garbage. This is, I mean, come on now. This, this is not the movie. You didn't spend 13 years to tell this horse shit. I had to read Wikipedia on this one, and it gave me a big aha moment. What happened is there are whalers who hunt these space whales because in their brain is a juice that allows for eternal life. Yeah, which, by the way, whaling uh, is a thing because of ambergris, and that's a reason why whales are hunted now. But a whaler killed this whale's mom, and this whale led his pod on a revenge mission to attack the whalers. Uh Uh-huh. And I guess that's how his pod died. And because revenge and violence is against the way of his species, he's now an outcast because he led this revenge mission. Oh, God. Don't you just want to stop? Like, that is like a get up, throw the popcorn bucket down, and be like, screw you. I'm done. The kid talking to the whale, which goes on for a long time. For too long. Yeah. This is when I thought about leaving. Yes. It's so awful. Because I'm like, I have to see this movie again tomorrow. I would never walk out of a movie for now playing that I have to review. I have to see it to the end because it would be unfair to come to a review and be like, fuck this movie. I've only seen half of it. Mm -hmm. So I have to see it through. But I thought I was seeing it again the next day and no part of me wanted to watch this twice. I agree with you. It was when I decided I was canceling the second ticket. There was no way I was going to sit through this again. It was a travesty that I had to sit through it at all. I don't want to see it again, I'll tell you that. No, but this, I mean, again, this is something I would expect out of Walt Disney in 1973. Or Free Willy, (laughs) which I never even watched, but they made three of them damn things. And the goddamn thing is going to do like a Free Willy half flying over the kid and landing on the boat later and all this. It just, I cannot believe these are the blueprints for where to go in Pandora. I can't believe that this is what James Cameron... There are like four credited writers on this. And what they came up with was this? You know what I kept thinking is that James Cameron had no ideas. Yeah. He had effects and he wanted to bring in these animals, but so much time is spent on this. Mm. This is a longer movie than the first one and I feel like there's even less story. Agreed. Yeah, I can't believe how little notes that I had when I was, you know, because I write during all this. I have a giant legal pad. I'm furiously scrabbling. I'm thinking, oh, three hour, 12 minute movie. I'm going to fill this thing up. And it wasn't half full because, again, I was just dumbfounded. I just sat there being like, more with this whale? And the whales misunderstood and woo you know, the, the crying and all this stuff and got to go back. I mean, just every kind of hoary, cliched kids film trick about he goes back and takes the blame for the bully so he can bond and all this stuff. I'm like, I just, this feels like something made for the Disney Channel. 
to capitalize on the popularity of Avatar for the young market. So you see why I love the spider monkey stuff so much is because it's a break from the abject stupidity of the reef people. <laughs> yeah. Is it though? Because I really thought he was terrible and annoying. I mean, the Jungle Boy thing, that was that was another movie, right? Jungle to Jungle or something Disney did. But like, well, there's the Jungle Book that had the boy Mowgli, raised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was one where like he, I think Tim Allen's involved in this. Again, I just feel like all the references <laughs> are all the kids films I avoided in the 90s and early 2000s. But yeah, there, that stuff should be good. I agree with you. There's a richness if they were truly wanting to explore identity and adaptability, could Quaritch actually become a good dad and learn to love the enemy? Would have been an interesting story, except it's pretty clear that he has no interest in doing so. And so those scenes aren't very satisfying, but they should be. I'm not saying they're good. I'm saying they're better. I'm saying I wish there were more of them because at least I was engaged in the movie during this stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was curious about this resurrection in the Navi. Was he really not feeling fatherly impulses? And Spider being a human, I just was able to connect with that character a little bit more. I don't know mm -hmm. this actor from anything. He doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. But I thought he did very well in this role as this Navi-raised human that is now... It's weird because he's now interacting with humans in Na'vi bodies more, and his possible allegiance change seemed like a more interesting plot to me than, look, we're going to teach you how to breathe. There's going to be so many lines about mm -hmm. breathe from here. Yeah. I'll give him this. I mean, I read that Sigourney Weaver held her breath for seven minutes underwater in training for this movie so that they could do underwater mocap, which has never been done. Great. I don't know why you had to do it, mm -mm. but I respect the effort that went into it. But what came out is beautiful screensaver. Yeah, she should have held her breath for new script pages, is what she should have done, <laughs> and said, I ain't doing this stuff. Like, all of this labored, faux-preachy, oh, the water will take you to birth and death, and I'm like, this is not good. This is kind of generic, what I imagine, like, white people coming up with Native American religious motifs kind of crap. Like, she didn't teach us anything. Can we all agree we don't understand anything more about water by watching her pontificate in this way? Apparently, breathing from the diaphragm is going to let me dive deeper. I learned that. Well, yeah. I mean, I know about pearl diving. Like, that's all cool and all of that. <laughs> Believe me, James Cameron and water is usually a terrific mix. I mean, that, uh, the abyss and Titanic, the stunt work that is done in that, when I heard they were going to go beneath the ocean waves for this kind of exploratory, immersive Pandorian experience... I thought it would be great, and it does look great. But yes, Kiri's whole arc here about they have another tree. Remember the whole big deal about, oh, they cut down the tree and all oh, the poor tree? They got trees all over the place, including under the <laughs> sea. And this tree, she plugs into it and has an epileptic seizure, and they have some bullshit about she can never go in the water again? Mm. No, she could never plug into the tree again because it's under the water and she's going to drown. But I think she is being set up... It's very weird. This is all surrounding Kiri, played by Sigourney Weaver. I mean, is she Jesus? She's wondering who her father is, and it's a strange birth out of this 
avatar that had no human in it. Was it a virgin birth? I'm not sure. But the fact that she keeps talking about, I can feel my mother when I connect to the tree. She's all around us. I feel her heartbeat. Who is my father? All of this never pays off and makes me think that they're setting her up to be the savior of part three or four or five. Or the villain. I mean... Yeah, something big. I agree with that. She's actually a face on some of the posters. There is a a lot of curiosity built around her and speculation about who the father is. Some people are saying it's the nerd boy, the Spellman character, might have knocked up Grace. We can't really know, but I tend to think you're right. I tend to think this is some kind of immaculate conception that there it wasn't like the scientist had a baby in her. Where are these babies coming from? Like Quaritch having a baby and then she having a baby. But she had a baby in her Navi form, which, I mean, if it wasn't Immaculate Conception, meant she went and had Navi sex and her body got pregnant. Yeah. Why did they make the baby so confusing? Spider's confusing. Well, I mean, I, I you want difference. The thing is, if you're going to have, what, five children is what it totally is, you want to have some difference. So you have the model son, not Mateo, but Nateum, who does everything right, apparently, and is trying to be a warrior like his dad. Then you have Loak, who is always brasher and getting his brother in trouble by saying, let's go grab guns and shoot them and doing things that got his brother hurt, later getting his brother killed, in fact. Then you have, yeah, the cute one. Took's job is just kind of like Full House, you know, just like <laughs> cut to the kids smiling and saying something cute. That's Took. You got it, dude. Yeah, exactly. And then we have these other two variants, which one is an adoptive Navi, who I definitely agree with you. She is set up for something big in part three. She has special needs, right? She has a connection to her environment that she's the only one not struggling being under the water. She later will command with a wave of her hand some bioluminescent, like, sea anemones. They talk about her having delusions of grandeur being the epilepsy, but I'm positive that's going to be one of these arcs is that it's not delusions of grandeur. Of course. She's actually connected, but nobody's going to believe her due to this epileptic seizure. Right, because so much of it, the Navi are never thought to have any dimension. Like, they are right about everything. Their holistic idea of love Mother Earth is Cameron's. And so he doesn't question that, ever. And the fact that, yes, we have these scientists, the humans, will come in and be like, well, this brain obviously has the features of, you know, the seizures have the feature of an epileptic, the delusions of seeing God. These are all things we associate with mental illness, that's not going to be Cameron's take on this. Cameron is an optimist. Cameron is an adapter. He believes in the power to transform. So this character is going to transform into some kind of major figure in the saga, without a doubt. But here, it just looks like an aloof child that goes under the sea and makes, you know, seahorses dance around her. Puts on a cape of starfish or something. It helps them breathe, I guess, somehow, by connecting to their tail. They can stay underwater even longer if they have this butterfly on their back. And I guess because Grace was downloaded into the Earth, you can plug in and see her anytime. 
why that's triggering the epilepsy is a mystery meant to intrigue and tantalize. But to me, it just looked really sloppy and silly. Again, it looked like sticking your finger in a light socket. All of a sudden, she like plugs in, twitches, and they've just said you can't go into the... Wa- I thought they said you can't go into the water again. Maybe that's the case. Maybe they're afraid that she would have a seizure and drown. I only saw this once. I thought they were saying she couldn't plug into the tree again and couldn't talk to her mother anymore, and that was the tragedy. But I I may be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Not good. Any of this stuff. A large section of this movie is devoted to these children having these growing pains, and I wince. One, I just think it's strategically a bad thing to give all the focus to, And two, the dialogue, the way that these things are sloppily introduced, it's just, it's as clumsy as any Saturday morning entertainment. I cannot believe that Cameron and his passel of screenwriters took a decade to come up with this. I kept waiting for drama, especially when Loak was left alone outside the reef. What kept hitting me is one of these kids needs to die. There needs to be drama. There needs to be stakes in this movie. And it's not going to come till the very end. And I did wonder if that would happen at the very end because, you know, climactic change and all that. But I kept feeling like something needed to raise the stakes here. And it just never happened. This So much of this movie is just about its title, The Way of Water. And Again, I think that's what people who love that first movie are going to love about this, is it's more exploration and things. But I didn't like that in the first movie, and I'm really not liking it here. It's better looking, but it's less interesting because there's not even the background stuff. These characters, as you said, have no dimension. In the Mm -mm. first one, Jake was supposed to be working for Quaritch, and betraying the Navi. And we at least saw his arc as he went from somebody who was undercover to somebody who was siding with the Navi. It's not original, but at least it's an arc. Here, what are these children learning or changing or anything? I mean, they're they're learning to swim, but how is it changing them? I didn't think they'd spent $400 million for a swimming lesson. This is some (laughs) ridiculousness. And I just want to put it out there. Recommend then and now for that first one. I liked being transported to that world. It was great to have that tactile sensation. I'm not against that. I'm not. What I am against is to spend, to justify all your deep sea dives with this lame-ass script. I just, I can't even believe it. I'm appalled, offended, really. And, And even more so, knowing that there are people that are praising this that are saying that this is better than the first one. That was actually a reaction. Someone after the movie, you know, I stayed through the credits because you never know. There might have been a tease of something at the end. There is not. But uh, someone that was in the audience saw my legal pad and was like, I noticed you were writing. Are you a reviewer? Blah, blah, blah. What did you think? And, you know, I asked him, I was like, I didn't want to say, I, was, I just kind of shrugged <laughs> and I asked him and he was just like, well, you know, the, the visuals were so great. That story didn't quite hit the bucket, but yeah, the visuals, you know, like that seemed to be the only thing he could land on was that it looked so much better than last time. Ergo, this is a better movie than last time, but it is not a better story than last time. It is a much more scattered juvenile story. Well, I'd like to point out, though, with the juvenile story and it being owned by Disney, I bet the Disney store and the parks are full of Navi 
kitty themed things, whereas the last one was more adult in subject matter and violence. This one didn't have near as much violence, I thought. But with the kids, and especially with Took, I bet that the Disney parks and the stores are full of stuff. Yeah, but here's the thing. James Cameron doesn't take notes from Walt Disney. You know what I mean? No, and this was made under Fox. Okay, as I say, but see, it seems very Disney. Yeah, yeah. He started filming this before that deal was made. But I don't believe that he he has enough of an ego to, to do what he wants. They would let him do it his way or he won't play is the way I understand that man to work. Certainly that was his deal at Fox. He could literally walk on water there and they would accept that. And here he is drowning. Like, I cannot believe that this is the movie that we waited for. And yet I see in our Facebook group people posting four and a half and five star reviews of this, talking about better than the first one, how it's thematically so tight and everything ties together. And I came into this podcast, Stuart, wondering if you would explain that to me. But you and I saw the same movie because I'm like... The themes, the themes are become one with nature, and even we see Quaritch doing that, but I don't see how that really is a fulfilling story here. Yes, nobody can dispute the visuals are amazing, and better than the first, the 3D was tremendous, it's been a long time since I've been really impressed with a 3D movie, here the depth is always great, but... The depth is great visually. The depth is not there plot-wise and story-wise. Character. No, quite the opposite is that these are so clumsily done. Like, embarrassing. Again, first draft, we need to fix this kind of stuff. And to think that this went on for years, I'll offer this much. And I think this will color the experience. I'm not a father. Arnie, as far as I know, you're not a father. As far as I know, too. (laughs) Marjorie, (laughs) you know, like we're not people that have raised children. So maybe we're immune to the heavy dose of sentimentality that is passing for character work here. It feels saccharine to me. It feels the opposite of authentic. But for some people, maybe it's just easy to plug into that because the roles of the characters are roles that they play day by day. All I can say is, yeah, there's, what, two hours and 40 minutes of the movie that we're kind of just like, I don't know what else there is to say about this middle other than it's about a bunch of children swimming. And I bet that because I did not see it in 3D that it was like super boring for me because I feel this movie could have been two hours shorter and accomplished the same point because I didn't get the same visuals. I thought this movie was super boring as well. That's why I thought about walking out. I couldn't believe it. The novelty of that is not the same as it was 13 years ago, right? Everyone's seen quite a few 3D movies since then. So, again, where I connect is the facial acting is so much stronger here. I feel connected to the cartoons, as it were. But the storyline is too cartoonish. Did you guys feel that they adjusted the proportions of the bodies a little bit more where they weren't so tall and like weird because in the first one they were really tall and lanky and had really super thin torsos and looked i don't know it was off-putting but in this one well less humans made them feel less alien if you will but i know it seems like they adjusted the proportions a little bit and with the cgi being better they weren't as off-putting as they were in the first one for me at least 
I'll agree. I thought Jake had, like, become a bodybuilder. His neck is wider than it was in the last one. His chest is broader than it was in the last one. They did change it. Maybe for the water, maybe for the actor. I'm not quite sure. But it did feel different. Also, their skin seemed less bright. Even... I mean, I'd watched the original and went the next day to see this one, and I just maybe it's something with watching it 4K on Disney Plus versus watching it in a theater, but I felt like the skin tones were more muted. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this climax finally comes where... Why have they commandeered this whaling boat? Like, all of a sudden, it's like a takeover. Quaritch just drops in there and like, this is my boat now, and we're doing it my way. I feel like the people who have colonized Pandora don't have a navy. And so if he wants a boat, he has to take it that way. I feel like Edie Falco told him to do it. I mean, they can't get him a boat. They can build a skyscraper in a day. They can't get the man a boat. He's got to steal a whaling boat. I don't know. So yeah, so he goes around. He starts torturing like villages. They all live in these kinds of spongy little hammocky houses. And he sets them on fire and threatens to shoot people and act like a real jerk. I'm not seeing him in any way connecting to the Navi that he now is. So there's no real suspense that he might become a different person, which would be the reason, the curiosity of sticking someone like Quaritch in a Navi body. Agreed. It would be so interesting if he turned against his people the way Jake did. Of course, I'd cry it out for being the exact same plot, but it would be more interesting than just being pretty one note. His arc is to become a father, not to become kind. Right. And so, yes, he's terrorized the people. They're getting closer. They've decided the way to get Jake to come out of there, or at least make the people angry enough that they'll expose Jake, is if they just start shooting up these whales. If they just start, you know, hunting them close by. Because this hunting crew does hunt these whales normally, but they just don't do it on the shoreline. Now that these whales have migrated to be back with the Navi, they would otherwise leave them alone and go far out to sea to kill the strays. And instead, they have to basically murder the animals in front of the pet owners. I found this part horrifying because I don't like animal movies because they're always sad. So this was really hard for me to watch because you, you can't take me to like Free Willy or anything because I'll cry. I hated this part. Just emotionally, you were, well, maybe it, that's showing that it's effective then. Yeah, I'm not good at this stuff and I never have been. Right. You don't want it, but it's getting to you at least. Emotionally, you're feeling like when they come and kill the mother in front of her calf and they do all, you see how they like tie inflatables to it and do all of these dramatics. Well, now you're making it worse. Thanks, Stuart. <laughs> well, they, they, they do all of this stuff to like essentially open its mouth and get one gland drained yeah. and then be like done. You know, that's the point of it is that like all of that effort and then you just throw away what's so meaningful to a culture. You just throw away and turn into waste when all you needed was a secretion. Who's buying this? We don't really know much about the earth and the people there. We're not to think of them. We are not to identify with our own species. We're only shown the culture that is being, you know, exploited. 
And yeah, this is a painful exploitation. You're right. I Kind of cheap and gimmicky is what I would call. But yes, in the Bambi tradition, murdering an animal's mother in front of them and seeing how they disregard, you know, not only do they kill, because let's face it, Navi also hunt animals, but they always say, thank you, brother, when they stick the knife in and they're always, you know, using all parts of the animals and what have you. This just shows the waste, the disregard, the, the lack of respect. Watching the two movies so close together, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about when Natiri was teaching Jake to hunt and you do thank the animal. But they kill those fish with reckless abandon. They're just going to spear fish and shoot arrows at fish. They never apologize to the damn fish. Mm, yeah, right. I know. It's. I, I think we're meant to understand that they do respect it because everything is interconnected with the earth. Because they've taken that Native American philosophy, literalized it. We're just to understand. I just think it's hard to accept the idea that this whole culture is unassailable. We cannot find any criticism. There's not any internal strife in it. It just feels very facile. This very, like simplistic like come on there is internal strife there's the water people versus the forest people you can't swim good is the content of their racial difference and there must be some in the water people because they've apparently got two shitty teenage sons that are probably shitty to other people in the tribe or at least other people in the water tribes I, I want to just kind of throw up my hands. All of this doesn't feel very well thought out. I guess that's what I'm really stressing here, is that if I took 13 years to write a script, I would expect more character work than this. It seems like all the time was spent on rendering how sea life and coral looks in undulating waves, and nobody thought about how families actually act and interact with each other. It just it, it goes to sitcom tropes. But after this whaling scene... They decide the best way to get Jake to reveal himself is by just killing more whales. And of course, they go after the special whale. (laughs) They go after Hayakin. That's going to cause Jake to finally, finally find his spine and remember he used to be a Marine and that he's going to fight back and not just hide. No, because they capture his kids by doing that. If they, if the kids hadn't been playing with the whale they weren't supposed to, then they wouldn't have been kidnapped and he would have just moved down the coast to another hideout. But because the kids are there, they've done this now like three times of like, we got your kids and they'll keep doing it. I'm like, this is just lazy. This is just lazy writing that everything is about taking an eight-year-old girl and having her cry and saying, rescue me, daddy. Like, that's crap. I was happy that we were finally going to get some action happening. I gotta say that. James Cameron is good at action. The last hour of Titanic is my favorite. And I think here, it's decent. I wish there weren't so many beats replayed. I wish the kids didn't escape just to get captured again. Mm. I wish that there was a little bit more to it than just Quaritch versus Jake, which is what it feels like it comes down to, even though it should be much bigger. But it's the best part of the movie. At some point, like, all the water people go into battle with Jake and his family, and then, like, quarter of the way through, the water people just disappear. I mean, they weren't all killed, obviously, but they're just gone. And it's just 
Jake and his family on the boat and nobody else doing like support or anything. The water people haven't really made a huge dent. The one that we're supposed to like the most is Rhea because that's the one Luat has fallen for. Mm -hmm. And she's the one that gives all the speeches about the ways of water and how to hold your breath. But yeah, by and large, I haven't connected with this new culture at all. They live in pretty homes, but feelings for them not established. And yes, it is all about my family keeps getting tied up to the mast, and I have to keep going back for them. (laughs) Yeah, there are a lot of dumb decisions made during this battle, too. Kids, adults, everybody just made bad decisions throughout this entire movie. Yeah, Payakon only does a half free willy. Like, he flips up on the deck and then just lays there and gets shot up. Like, I was like, this is your plan? <laughs> you better hope they come riding into your rescue. And of course they do. There's all this stuff with, like, pulling wires. We have one of the whalers get his hand cut off and thrown in the water. You know, revenge for them killing the mother in such a way. And yet I expect him to come back with a robot hand next film to get more revenge. Yeah, why not? Yeah, Payakon's like exposing himself to bullets and... But he's exposing his hard shell, which is impervious. They say at one point, the only way to hurt these space whales is with an explosive harpoon in the belly. So by being belly down, these bullets don't even hurt him. Mm, okay, cool. Um, you know, <laughs> at some point... <laughs> I mean, I mean, do I care about any of this? Nateum gets shot. You know, you're right. They had to kill a kid. And why not do it with the one that we've barely paid attention to? He had one moment early on in the film as a teenager learning to hunt fish with a bow and arrow. And since then, uh, you know, he got into a fight defending his sister's honor. His half-sister was called a freak. But I haven't paid attention to this character. Now he's dead. Okay, I'll continue to not pay attention to him. Yeah, he was boring. He didn't have anything interesting going on except for constantly getting in trouble for letting his brother do things. Yeah, Took's cute, but they play that card way too many times. Crying, help me, help me, I'm drowning. How many times does that happen? You know, the audience behind me, there was a family and they loved that stuff. Every time there was a line that I thought, oh, that's mildly cute. They were in uproarious laughter. They were the only ones in the whole theater, but my God, did they love that stuff. (laughs) Well, a cute kid is a cute kid, and it could be a value if you play it right, but here, it's just tiresome. I mean, it just, the emptiness, the emptiness of this vessel as it's sinking, both literally on the screen and in my esteem of Avatar, it's just painful to me to watch all of this stuff. Yes. Is it kick-ass action quotes around that, I suppose? Do I give a shit? Not one moment of it. Yeah, I agree. Even when Jake is fighting Quaritch, I'm thinking it'll go like the last one. I thought Natiri would jump in and save him at the last moment because she's there too, trying to rescue their kids. But this just becomes hand-to-hand and it looked to me like Jake choked Quaritch to death. Like, forget the water, that neck hold, I thought, just suffocated him and that's why he finally stopped fighting. The fact that Spider is able to save Quaritch, I guess Navi bodies are just far more resilient than human bodies because I was applying human fight rules here. But does it even matter when his consciousness exists somewhere that he can be downloaded into another body? Killing this avatar doesn't solve the Quaritch problem that they'll have. Yeah, he'll just keep coming back. Oh my god, like Agent Smith, you could have an army of Quaritches next film. 
Yeah, <laughs> I just, I mean, again, the whole premise of like they needed Jake because his twin brother was dead. I'm like, why not just download his conscience into the thing? Like people don't die in this world. So I don't, I don't even understand the stakes. But Kiri does her thing. She lights a path when Took and Natiri get trapped in an area, air pocket, deep in. It's a, it's a Titanic moment. A lot of this climax is riffing off things Cameron had done in Abyss and Titanic. But the lights go out, the power goes out, and it's sinking, and they don't think they have much longer. All of a sudden, these floating bioluminescent things guide their way out. And yes, Luwak helps Dad when Dad doesn't think he has the strength to swim on. He and the space whale get him to the surface. Spider. Yeah, this man should be dead. I'm sorry. If he got choked out and left there for several minutes after being killed, to suddenly be able to be revived by Spider is dumb. The whole Spider character was just, I found him annoying. And his character arc was pretty just blah with going from feral slash Navi adjacent kid to getting captured, then lovingly teaching them the Navi ways, betraying his people, and then rescuing the dad. Well, he has a choice here. I mean, I think he's interesting because, I mean, he is human. He is not a Navi. He can't breathe this air. I don't know how much oxygen is in that tank, but it feels like it's weeks worth. But it would be really like as big as him to carry that much air around on a tank. But he has the choice to go back. And I think it's telling that even though he rescued Quaritch, he does not want to continue on in his campaign. He didn't turn evil, right? He's still sticking. His family is by choice. And he's he is a Sully. In the end, the Sullys stick together. And even though he is not biologically related and not even Navi, he's part of the family. This whole thing is a testament to the multidimensionality of what family can look like. But then we end much like the first one ended. Here, Jake is going to say to the Reef Chieftain, you know, we're going to leave. We've brought you this problem. And the Reef Chief is like, no, you're one of us now. Just like Jake was one of them with the Forest Navi at the end of the first film, now he's also one of the Reef people at the end of this film, and they replay that beat identically. Yeah, and he's just like, oh, you're right. Okay, now let's have our last stand. Next movie. Yeah, that's so contrived. So, Stuart, Marjorie, do you recommend Avatar The Way of Water? I'm forced to ask that question. I think I know the answer. <laughs> Stuart. Yeah, I see you way of water. And you know what? Your superlative technical qualities are impressive. I'll lead with the compliment. The facial recognition software has evolved in the 13 years. And I really do feel like while this movie could look like a cartoon animated film, I see the organics in that computer technology. It is a both a human and special effects performance. It is really neat to see the Navi and the way that they talk to one another and the details of Pandora are resplendent. Great looking film and they're really set up to tell a great story. But that's the other thing I see. Disastrous, disastrous story concerns and choices. A screenplay that constantly recycles beats from really silly movies like Free Willy and just lame 70s Disney boy and his dog kind of tropes without ever finding genuine connection, without ever actually appealing to adult emotions or intellect. 
And part of that is just the dialogue. I just, I can't tell you how often it vacillates from these platitudes to these juvenile retorts. Like, my family is a fortress, so hands off date night, you butthole. I mean, like, that It feels like <laughs> the entire movie. Like, it goes between those two things. But all the dialogue is so awful. So many stupid lines, so many stupid scenes in the middle of this movie, just torpedoing all of its ambitions. I really am just frustrated with what people are seeing here. Why are they falling for this? And again, I keep landing on the idea because they have families and because emotionally speaking, it's not hard for them to tap into these dynamics the way that I'm struggling. I just want to assert family has always been a great theme for Cameron. Sarah Connor trying to bring up John, Ripley becoming super mom to Newt, the divorce storylines in Abyss and True Lies. It is usually a thing that emboldens and makes his movies more powerful. They course with more adrenaline because of these familial relationships. But here, it is the barnacle that is dragging everything down here. He has made everything about this silly sitcom family that has really lightweight concerns and nothing to hold my interest for the three hours and 12 minutes. So I can't believe I'm saying this because I have never not recommended a James Cameron movie. But this one is a solid not recommend. I'm sure some of this is what you're hearing is huge disappointment. If I were to come back to this movie, and I will when Avatar 3 comes out, I will probably be kinder than I can be today. What you are hearing is the hurt of feeling betrayed. That I waited this long for something that was not worth it. And again, I see you. What I see is the most expensive Sid and Marty Croft episode ever made. And I just think it's beneath the talent's the budget, the James Cameron, they can all do better here. It's just, I can't believe that this was the film that we were given. And maybe when I get over that, I'll be kinder. But right now, I don't ever want to see this movie again. I didn't go back for a reason. Marjorie. Well, I don't feel as let down as Stuart does. And I feel Stuart needs to write a letter to James Cameron and ask for his money back, maybe. Well, you didn't like the first one. And I did. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. But I feel bad because you seem to have your feelings hurt by this movie. <laughs> I feel really yeah, bad. because I'm, I'm betrayed. I know what it's like to be disappointed. I mean, it's hard. And, you know, I went in thinking that this movie would be kind of like the first one and it would kind of be an eye rolling and kind of blah. And it ended up being a big snooze fest which is, again, highly unusual for a James Cameron movie, which Stuart mentioned. If you name James Cameron's movie, I probably like a lot of them. I have fond memories of seeing The Abyss. I love True Lies, Terminator, Alien. You know, this is all great stuff. And then you get this, and it kind of feels like it's been softened. Well, the stuff we used to have where the action sequences just aren't as good and flashy. But what we get of them is so few and far between that they're watered down because they just don't matter. Yeah, watered down. The the entire middle part of this movie, really boring, and I just didn't care. I could not connect with any of these, and maybe it's because I don't have kids. There's nothing to connect. I certainly couldn't connect with any of the adults. I'm sure it was gorgeous in 3D. I wasn't able to see the 3D. I saw it in 2D, but you could have cut most of this movie and been okay, and you probably could have just not made this movie and been okay, but... (laughs) I don't know that it adds anything. It clearly set up for other sequels, which... There's five already planned. There's one for each stage of the grief, right? Disney won't greenlight part five till they see how part two and three do. 
I guess I'm going to go through this then every time then, then this comes out. And I hope it doesn't end up being a child-centric series of movies because that's going to lose me. You know, I don't, I mean, not that I don't like kids. I'm sure yours are super precious. Every listener we have, I'm sure yours are the best in the whole world. But it's not what the kind of movie I enjoy. There's one kid's movie I enjoy and that's Shazam. And that's it. And this did not have the appeal of Shazam or the cuteness and funness that Shazam had with the kids. I can't recommend it. I mean, unless you're like super steeped in the Navi culture and I'd skip this. So you both used a term that spoke to me and that was connection. I felt so disconnected from all of these characters and plot is so important to me in movies. Your effects have to be passable. I can't lose my suspension of disbelief with your effects. And here, the effects are incredible. But I think too much focus was spent on the effects and not enough focus was spent on character. If the hypothesis you have, Stuart, that fathers or family people could relate to this better than we can, if all you have is self-identification in a character, that's a bad character. That is a not well-written character. If all you do is go to a movie and go, yeah, that's me on screen, that's not enough. And the reason it's you, I doubt any of the fathers who connect with this film are water-swimming ex-marines who have to go on the lam in order to not be hunted by a space military. None of them, yeah, on the space military particularly. It's an issue. (laughs) I think it's more general, Arnie. They just understand what it is to have these kids around them. And that's lazy. That is lazy storytelling. I have cared about families, and I have cared about Mm -hmm. fathers in films. Cameron's good at it, usually. I am not such a cold-hearted bastard that if a well-written movie won't make me want to see that familial relationship succeed. You mentioned True Lies. I care very much about that marriage and about their daughter, as we discussed in that podcast. So, here... Yeah, I just can't connect with any of the characters except a little bit with Spider because I'm curious to see where that goes, whereas everything else goes nowhere. This movie just floats, and unfortunately, yes, the thought that this is over three hours of somebody's life and there's so many better things, there's so many better movies you could watch. You could watch two great movies in the time that this one takes, especially when you add in the 10-minute Mission Impossible IMAX preview that I got at this. I was in the theater with my butt in that seat for four hours, and I much more enjoyed the previews than I did this movie. I have never walked out of a movie in the middle, with the exception of a time I got paged for work. I've never strongly considered I'm out. And this one I did. So it is a strong not recommend. And the fact that part three is already filmed just tells me this is going to be more of the same. Part three can't change course. And why would it? This is going to be one of the biggest movies of all time. It has to make $2 billion to succeed and be profitable. That's what James Cameron has insinuated. And it's going to make half a billion in one weekend worldwide, looking at China estimates. It's going to be a huge success for him. Another jewel in his crown that I will not understand. It's a strong not recommend, and I wish to never return to Pandora. This movie was abysmal. 
<laughs> I got some good news for you. I, I can say this much. Cameron has given some interviews. I haven't. I didn't take in a whole lot of information about this, but he said he got a lot of notes from the studio about his ideas for part two. But when he turned in the later drafts, the studios were really surprised. They gave less feedback. And again, maybe that's just because they know they can't tell him anything, but that the directions that he is taking it are so different and unassailable, apparently, that uh, we will get something different. It will not remain Swiss Navi Robinson. They're going to do something more than the Disney family next time. And it, he promises for it to get weird. Admittedly, the stuff with Curie was somewhat interesting with no payoff. I would much more prefer to see something about an Immaculate Conception and her rise to spiritual goddom than what we have here. More than payoff, because that's the the deal with all these things, right? They're all sagas. Marvel's movies are all interconnected. There's a greater thing to know next time. I would say the demonstration of it in this movie was poor. The thing to focus on is the way that these characters were introduced and shown to us was substandard. Kiri's drama was not good here. And so while I want to be invested in what happens to her in Avatar 3, I don't know. Just why did he make these sequels? Why not give it to other filmmakers? That's what I can't understand. Worry about the technical, be the George Lucas, and let people that want to tell stories tell them. What I feel, I was thinking about Lucas and Lucas with the prequels. Your disappointment with this film is probably, if now playing had been going in 1999, I may have felt the same way when it came to The Phantom Menace. And that George Lucas wouldn't loosen the rein when it came to the prequel films. He had to direct them all himself. I feel like James Cameron is in that situation now. Yeah. I want to believe that there are great designs for this. And I did believe that up until watching this movie and the way that it's being received and talked about and the way that people are satisfied with this being enough or even... And this is just crazy to me. Better than the last time, I'm flabbergasted by this. I maybe maybe I just am out of the loop, but this I'm not connecting with where this is headed and I'm hoping just praying really that something interesting happens in Avatar 3. Cuz nothing did here. Agreed, and it's filmed, it's happening in 2 years. One interesting thing that I found is James Cameron is spending two years on it. I was like, why is it not coming next year? Why is he not doing Lord of the Rings and just ruling over Christmas? There's no Star Wars movies at Christmas anymore, so why not let Disney have Avatar every year? It's because of the effects. Instead of doing what all the other studios do, where you farm it out to every effects house that's available and have whoever can work on the effects. James Cameron has his effects house doing all of this in order to maintain the quality. So yeah, I can see why it's going to take two years to do. And so we will be back in 2024 to discuss, what, Avatar now in the desert? (laughs) But long before that... (laughs) We've got one more movie, one more new release from 2022, and that is Knives Out. I love that first movie, and I'm really excited to see Ryan Johnson and Daniel Craig crack a new case with Glass Onion. Knives Out is a film I really liked. You heard that review last week, and next week, can the sequel measure up? Justin Stewart and I will be back to discuss. And in the meantime, this Friday... We have more dystopia, the opposite of James Cameron's optimism, Mm. the ultimate pessimism of Brave New World.
Yeah, what would Cameron do in a culture where orgies are a way of controlling people? That's uh, hard to imagine uh, how he might uh, handle that material. But it's actually being done as a Peacock miniseries that we're covering with the star of the Han Solo Star Wars spinoff in the lead as John the Savage. I remember really liking it, and uh, it's pretty faithful to many of the concepts of that classic 1930s novel. We're exploring dystopias as they were seen in the 1930s this week. And I think with a 2020 TV series, uh, we see that those fears are still relevant. Yeah, just in time for the holidays, a little dystopian pessimism. (laughs) (laughs) Christmas Eve Eve. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, you guys can watch your Christmas movies if you want to. I, I spend my time thinking about negative outcomes. That's just me. Yes, we've heard your review of Christmas movies. We know where you stand. Mm. Hawkeye, Jingle All the Way. Yeah, well, I just don't see them. So, yeah, I'd much rather be reviewing Brave New World this Friday. So hopefully you can join us with a donation of $30 or more, get you 16 bonus podcasts, 10 dystopia films, plus the Adams Family series we did earlier this year. It would really be nice if for the holidays you could help support independent podcasting. We would greatly appreciate it, and thank you to everyone who's donated. There seems to be a lot of excitement for the show we put out last Friday reviewing Metropolis. I wasn't sure how reviewing a 1920s silent film would go, but Metropolis is considered the first sci-fi cinematic masterpiece, and our listeners in the Facebook group and online have seemed to really embrace it. So hopefully you can join us this Friday. You'll get to hear our review of Metropolis and Brave New World and eight more dystopias beyond. And Stuart Marjorie, thank you for joining me. And until next time, we see you. I guess this is my last video log. Is whatever happens tonight. Either way, I'm, I'm not gonna be coming back to this place. Well, I guess I better go. This is Jake Sully signing off. Thank you for listening to this now playing podcast movie review. We hope you enjoyed the show. That was insane. Help us spread the word about this show by leaving a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. The way of water connects all things. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com next Tuesday for another all-new movie review podcast. Everything is backwards now. Like out there is the true world. And in here is the dream. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Venganza Media Incorporated. We will fight terror with terror. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Our great mother does not take sides, Jake. She protects only the balance of life. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. 
Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2022, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. It was heard you. They leave the Pandora forest and go to live with the Metkayana reef plate. Yeah, good luck with that. (laughs) I thought I did pretty well. It was after I said that word. And soon the Sullys are accepted by the Metkayina. Keanu Reeves likes them? What? (laughs) Bodie. Hoping the... the clone? I thought. I can, yeah, it, I it's T U L K A N. So the L comes before the K. I don't know, man. <laughs> Leaving the toucan corpses floating. <laughs> I'm imagining toucan Sam at this point. Yes. <laughs> a, a whale trying to sell me fruity pebbles. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Fruit Loops, but yeah. <laughs> You're right. I kept writing his name as Mateo, but it's actually Nateum. I thought it was Mateo also, if that helps. Who is Mateo? I know that name. Is he in that Modern is, Family? Uh, su- no, Superstore. Mateo. Mateo Superstore. I knew it was a sitcom. But he's not here. He, he's at the Superstore. This is Nateum. Part three going to be like Good Burger with them plugging their hair into a giant hamburger and swimming in a strawberry jacuzzi. I want to know, like, is this what I got to look for? Well, first of all, you've seen more of Good Burger than I have. I don't know about the strawberry jacuzzi. Oh, best joke. Kel falls in the milkshake machine. And he's like, I'm in a strawberry jacuzzi. I love it. But... Even we see Quidditch. Even we see Quidditch. Mm. And until next time, we see you. And the hate that you're going to throw at us.